Hey everybody, welcome back to the Wild Plant Culture Podcast, where we explore connections between people and wild plants. This is our 10th episode. I know it's been a bit of a wait since the last one. My apologies. Not sure whether to blame coronavirus or the spring, but I think I'll be taking a hiatus every spring as things get really busy here in the nursery. I have come around to doing phone interviews for the time being, at least this first one with Jerry Wilhelm is over the phone. He's in Chicago anyway, so it was going to be a while before I got out there. So I was excited for the opportunity to give Gerald Wilhelm a call and converse with him about native plants, restoration, floristic quality analysis. Jerry is a field botanist, lichenologist, restoration practitioner, He's the creator of the Floristic Quality Assessment methodology, which I use a lot in my field work, and which we discuss a little bit in this interview. And he's also the author of The Flora of the Chicago Region with Laura Rurica, and the author of several previous floras of that area as well. Gerald Wilhelm has a number of great articles online, melding ecology and culture. Speaking of which, one of my favorites is called The Ecology and Culture of Water. There's links to some of his writing up at wildplantculture.com on the page for this podcast episode. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Wild Ridge Plants, where we grow native plants for home gardeners and ecological restoration, specializing in edible and medicinal and other cultural species, upland forest species, meadow species, glade species, pretty much whatever oddball species we fall in love with at the moment. So check us out at wildridgeplants.com. Without further ado, Gerald Wilhelm. One word that I'm really curious about, I think we use it a lot, and it's very convenient, but there's so much behind what it could potentially mean. I'd like to ask you, what do you feel that disturbance is? And I'm specifically asking about human disturbance because I know we also talk a lot about natural disturbances, but what is disturbance from a plant's perspective? Why might one, I don't know, limestone slope have I'm trying to stretch for examples that might be pertinent for me over here and you over there, but blue cohosh and Carex hitchcockiana and all kinds of cool stuff. And then, you know, slightly down the ridge, it might all be mugwort. What's, what's going on there um, that makes one area be quote unquote undisturbed and have such a high quality community and another area that really shares a lot, at least, superficially be uh, you know either weedy or invaded or invaded or simply sort of stagnant or undiverse well that's going to be uh, depending uh, that's of course contextual as to what's been the land use and the cultural relationship of that with both pieces through time and so if you've got mugwort in all likelihood that means that particular place where mugwort is growing has had a a change in habitat, one which probably has uh, perhaps, uh, well, what, what's happened in recent years is our soils have, in many cases, become so worn out, they've become almost industrialized with, uh, rather than, uh, and the weeds are becoming more industrial weeds like uh, 
mugwort when the, where they used to at one time maybe be more polygonum or amaranthus or something, which mm-hmm. is more associated with high nitrogen. But disturbance is, again, one of those words that gets used, and it's just it's, it's, it's like the word fire. It carries that baggage in our language, and disturbance, all it really means is to perturb or to upset a particular uh, equilibrium. And so in the case of uh, plant communities, North American plant communities, their Holocene all, uh, ontogeny has been inextricably linked to human culture and choices that different people have made in different places. So that they are, in a sense, the, the, the cultures, so long as they kept the system uh, stable in a macro sense, kept it sufficiently uh, dynamic to where there was there was a constant array of species diversity that provided all sorts of uh, roots and medicines and fibers and food and and uh, all these things. And so the nature, the net, the but this all occurred in a in a the broader context where that relationship that the culture had with the system was stable. So when you when we took the native people, and of course their relationship most strict, uh, included uh, burning on a regular basis in most North American communities and also uh, harvesting of, of wood and all sorts of other things. <clears throat> Excuse me. But uh, one could call those disturbances or one could say that they're simply uh, uh, an autochthonous dynamism that occurs in a landscape that's finely tuned to human culture and into which human culture is finely tuned to the landscape. So to pull disturbance out as an isolate context is is uh, is problematic. On the other hand, you know, and sort of the native peoples, they would have uh, encampments, of course, uh, where they had their, their abodes and their kitchen middens and their compacted areas. And so there was a a guild of species that grew in such places, and they would be the, the sort of the new world uh, analogs to the old world weeds that uh, that grew up with agricultural sedentary people in the Fertile Crescent, and followed agricultural sedentary people around the world. And so, those that flora, there's about a hundred of hundred species, and they're, they're listed basically in the back of the 1994 edition. Are those species that? Uh, have now intermixed with the a similar number of species in the New World, and they occupy probably now 99% of our landscape. And so the the landscapes, there are very few landscapes in America left that have had a, a uh, salubrious relationship with human culture, uh, evocative of the one that uh, was in a, a, a kind of a dynamic equilibrium for the 15,000 years prior to our arrival. Since we're talking about disturbance and some of the camp follower species, both native and non-native, I was wondering if we could use that as a segue for you to describe a little bit about the basis of forest equality analysis and um, you know what you mean by species conservatism and, and that sort of spectrum from generalist to conservative species. Well, uh, okay, so 
that that started back in 1977 or 76, actually, when I was working on a natural area inventory for uh, Kane County, Illinois, and that was the same time that the in, in, that the that the state of Illinois, which was, was sort of pioneered the idea of the natural area inventory in 1975, and they were they were trying to call a lot of lands and select those areas that were considered natural areas or remnants of Illinois plant communities or Illinois or Illinois and they did it was a plant community based analysis too they would call it let's say maybe a natural area or an area would have so many acres of woodland so many acres of prairie so many acres of fen whatever and they would call them individually either A or B or C depending upon the uh, you know sort of how they viewed it you know, as a based upon a sort of uh, uh, ob just how it how it looked and how it matched up with the with the paradigms that they set up for a woodland. For example, a woodland to be a woodland at, at that time had to be 40 acres. It had to have a certain amount of uh, 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 old growth woods in it, uh, trees, and this then I think led to some, I mean, it brought out, it, it, it identified a lot of good woodlands, but it also missed some because uh, many of the Aboriginal woodlands in Illinois weren't 40 acres to begin with. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. it, it, we lost all of those. And some of them had been high graded at some time in the past and didn't have the old growth, and they still had yeah. all the diversity and the potential to be to be a self-replicating system if properly managed. So a lot of those got called B grade C or D, or even or B or whatever. And so things were falling through the cracks. And I can see that a community-based system wasn't wasn't sensitive to the to areas as a whole. And so if a an area that had say a grade A woods and a grade C prairie in their minds, uh, the grade C prairie part of the area might not be uh, might not be picked up as important, uh, even though it might be. Uh, well, anyway, there's. It, it just it just seemed in my mind it wasn't really answering the question that that I was trying to answer at least, which was, what are the areas in Kane County, Illinois, that were sufficiently uh, composed as to be irreplaceable if they were damaged or if they were uh, in some way compromised and so how do we then select those for preservation and and consideration for it wasn't much consideration for management back then but for for preservation and so the only sort of scientific uh, analyses or uh, ecological uh, applications at the time were what people had been using for transects and ordinations where they would take a, a meter square quadrat and they set out ordinations to try to define plant community, or they would, they were counting uh, in, in some of the pastures of the Midwest and West, what they call increasers and decreasers in a in a in a grazed in a grazed area, and none of these were as were answering the question that I was asking, and that's when and and somebody suggested well uh, Dick Young had said why don't we take all these plants that are very rare and call them tens, all those plants mm -hmm. that are very uh, common, you know, just ubiquitous, call them zeros, and the weeds give them negative numbers, 
and tried that for a while. But what was, what was happening was um, it, it 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 picked up uh, it picked up some areas, of course, because if they had rare plants in it. But sometimes rare plants weren't that conservative, and sometimes rare yeah. conservative plants were relatively frequent in in living systems. So. Ray Schulenberg and I sort of modified that to uh, the idea, well, if we see if you brought a plant into the herbarium, how confident are you that it was in a in a really high quality natural area? And if you brought in one of the examples I use is uh, Lepidium virginicum and said, mm-hmm. what do you think I was when I collected this? Uh, we'd say, well, you were probably in a, uh, near a crack in the sidewalk outside the herbarium. <laughs> Yeah. If they brought if they brought in uh, trillium, uh, uh, you know, grandiflorum, we say, well, where really what kick butt uh, woods were you in, you know, recently? And so we had a certain level of confidence, and then we sort of then fine tune that. And basically, uh, soil being so important, and as you mentioned earlier with the mugwort, uh, what happened to that little piece of soil or that tractor that allowed the mugwort to have an advantage over the more stable native systems or native species? So you ended up with a system where the low numbers on the spectrum were not really, you'd have no confidence that they came from an intact or remnant native right. habitat and the higher numbers. One of the things that I think maybe some well, people but, but, get, but, yes, please. Well, let, me, well, well, let me finish that. Let me just finish. I just had a, had yeah. a little sip of water. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but so a soil is very important. And so basically, the way I think about it now, and the way it's it sort of salted down, uh, distilled down, is uh, that if you see a plant that's, well, let's say in our area, Trillium reprobatum, which is, they call it prairie trillium, but it's a little red trillium that grows in, in woodlands, and it requires aboriginal soil conditions. It will not grow in a mass graded site or a site that's been heavily, you know, disturbed from, from you know, uh, pasturing or compaction or whatever. And so if you see a trillium, uh, a reprobatum, you're basically 95% confident you're in some sort of aboriginal soil, which, of course, is irreplaceable in and of itself, right? And, but you have almost no confidence that it's a high-quality remnant system. In other words, you can't, if you saw a red trillium, you couldn't testify to somebody that you were in a truly awesome woods. And so uh, that would be a five, all right? And like I said, we've, we've already called the... Uh, the poor man's pepper, uh, Lepidium virginicum, is zero, or Enothera biennis, just about a zero. It could have pop up in a dooryard, you know, maybe a one. Uh, and then, uh, on the other hand, with us, something like, uh, you know, Cypripidium uh, regini is only grows in high-quality uh, shaded fens where there's a good source of mineralotropic groundwater. That's a ten. They say, you know that's the case. It would not grow anywhere else. And then the spectrum runs from 5 to 0 on the one side or from 4 to 0 on one side and from 6 to 10 on the other. And you wind up uh, and you and then you develop the mean uh, coefficient of conservatism of all the plants in the system. And you can get a uh, a sense of an actual measured sense of the extent to which it has species conservative to irreplaceable conditions. Which means, and going, going, that goes back then to the National Environmental Policy Act of 19, 
1869, which was signed into law in 1970, uh, the preamble to which, or the goal of which, was to analyze the degree to which the impact on our area was irreversible or irretrievable. And this was then a way of meeting that, that goal. Because by if you have a mean sea somewhere in the high threes to early fours, uh, you know there's a strong likelihood that any further degradation of that system is going to be permanent. And so it's a way of, the, of our culture saying, setting these sort of priorities and say, well, we may not understand the system all that well. We're still struggling how to management, how to manage it. But we do know that if we damage it, it's not going to grow back. It's irreplaceable. So it's up to us to decide how many how many bits of creation that are left do we want to allow to move into the category of obliterated? And one of those yes. areas, and one of those areas that we think we need to preserve. And then the question is, at a, at a more at a different scale, if you run quad quadrats through a system, let's say you have a a, a, a woodland tract that has a an average coefficient of conservatism, say, of, of uh, say, 4.5, well, uh, you can, that's the old, that, what that tells you is you have still alive in that system uh, uh, enough species that are conservative to match up with those sort of uh, ubiquitous sort of blood platelet species or species that heal wounds, natural native species that heal wounds, like the zeros, ones, and twos, and threes, to give it a mean C of four and a half. On the other hand, if you went in with a quadrat and did, say, 25 uh, quarter meter quadrats and analyzed the mean C of each quadrat, you might discover that the woods on the ground at that, at that level of scale, at that quadrat scale, might have a mean C of, say, 3.5, because while it's got an overall mm -hmm. mean C of 4.5, at that at that beta beta level, there's a uh, there's a maybe a, it's it, that that quality is is diffuse throughout the system and isn't very tight. And on the other hand, if with management and restoration, with burning and maybe some thinning or whatever, that mean C uh, begins to tighten up over time and it begins to approach the 4.5 at the quadrat scale. That means that you're probably Starting, you're managing the system to optimum, to its optimum potential given its, its current condition. So that's really so, interesting. So what you're saying is, don't necessarily expect uplift in the mean C for the whole site, but instead look to have uplift at the beta level with your individual quadrats and bringing it up to the sort of potential that's expressed by the mean C of the entire site. Am I, am I kind of getting that right? No, that's exactly right. And uh, it's unfortunate that if an area you go in to, uh, let's say you go into a New Jersey pineland somewhere and you come out with a mean C of, of say, an acre of it, of, uh, let's say, let's say a five, okay? Yeah. And so, uh, <clears throat> And you, but you know you've, you've measured some areas in the Pinelands that have maybe a mean C of 5.5 or even 6. Yeah. Well, uh, it's unfortunate that if a place has been sufficiently damaged or neglected, you could, we have no evidence that suggests that that potential, that 5, that 5, that mean C of 5, even with good management, is going to get beyond that at that, at that alpha level. 
It does because you identify basically all of the potential in it. And so there, so once something is damaged to that to a point where that mean C is what it is at that alpha level, that's pretty much it. That it, it, and that's a sad thing. It's like somebody who's had a stroke. You know, the the left side of their face or whatever is never going to be right again. Quite, it's just damaged. And so that's the tragedy of our people who have either through heavy grazing or some or fire suppression or some kind of mismanagement have really damaged these systems irreparably. And all we can do is take these damaged but ir still irreplaceable systems and manage them to their best effect. And what's actually more important even than that, Jared, is redirecting the human spirit and soul toward healing and nurturing and understanding the life that we're embedded in and that exercise, if you will, that, you know, you become good at whatever you practice, right? And so the, the, the act of practicing stewardship, loving, caring, trying to understand is wholesome to the human condition in its own right. And so the, the deployment of, of, of love and, and caring for the land, for creation, if you will, is a, a is a is healing to ourselves, and when and so many people today grow up in an urban area, a suburban area where virtually everything is made by man, and the impression is that uh, therefore epistemologically in the growth of a child and their frame of a reference is the idea that anything that we you know if the computer goes down you can take it to the genius bar and get it fixed or uh, wait, wait for uh, Bill Gates to come up with an, up, an upgrade for Microsoft or if anything breaks we can fix mm -hmm. it because everything we everything we see is made by us there's very few people today in their ontogeny as a, as a human being and the development of their mind sees a world that can only be nurtured cared for and loved uh, but cannot be made we can't make a, a single living thing. This even this even comes down to our to rhetoric that's now uh, making headway in the architectural mode, where they talk about the living uh, the living building challenge, where they're trying to through embedded energy reduction and all sorts of other interesting architectural uh, uh, applications. There. They're meet the, they're called the living building challenge. Well, this implies that you can make a building that that lives. Well, no building we make can make a new building. We can't make a single thing that lives. And so, even there, we're getting off the track. And so, by taking by so in a sense, evaluating, understanding natural areas, learning to care for them, keep them healthy, uh, and and revel in their beauty, really is so important for the human soul if, if we're to remain human. I think there's some parallels between healing natural areas and healing ourselves, you know, physically. And, you know, of course, you're, I think, alluding to a spiritual aspect as well. You know, we are used to having so many mechanical creations that can be just put together with replacement parts or patches or upgrades or whatever. But, mm -hmm. you know, what we find a lot harder is how to diagnose an individual human being or an individual natural area and 
figure out, you know, what does that being or what does that entity, what does that area really need? I think one of the things I really appreciate about your work is the way that you tie in, uh, you know, obviously very hardcore field botany and restoration practice with this sense of the cultural and evolving stewards. And I guess I'm curious, you know, about the projects that you're working on right now and and how those combine, you know, what we might think of as a sort of more scientific realm of, you know, taxonomy and so on with the cultural realms. I'd love to hear about one or two projects that you might be uh, involved in today. Well, are you familiar with our latest book, the one that came out in 2017? Um, so I have a good friend and mentor in the Chicago area, Marion Cartwright, and we visited her a little while ago. And oh, yeah, I yeah. think th- I think that's when the the Flora came out, the latest edition. Mm-hmm. So being in New yeah. Jersey, I don't own a copy, even though I've you know sort of been enviously eyeing it. But when we stopped by Marion's, I, I flipped through. And I was just blown away by some aspects of it. And I don't know if I'm putting us on another tangent, but I definitely do want to ask you about the new flora and specifically about the idea of associated species, because I think that's so fascinating. We're so used to sort of taxonomizing and putting in compartments individual species as if that's what really matters. But I feel like one of the things that ecologists ecology points us towards is that it's really the relationships that matter. And here's this flora that, actually brings out the relationships that these plants have to each other and to other species. So if you want to either go into that now or next, I'd love to hear more about that because I literally spent, you know, 15 minutes just kind of ogling it over at Marion's when we visited her a couple of years ago. Yeah. Well, uh, that's, of course, has, as you can probably imagine, has has been part of my ontogeny as a as an observer of plants is to see them less as individuals and more of, as parts of broader systems, uh, and and of course with my colleague Laura Rarica, that we have included now many of the insects, particularly and they're particularly complex with our conservative native species, and uh, see that none of these no nobody lives alone. We all live in a we all live in a, a community of life if it's if we're healthy. And actually, that's what's that's what's beautiful in nature is when you have a lot of a lot of different species, none of which are perfect to look at, or would maybe be saleable in a nursery, but all growing together in harmony is what makes nature beautiful, not the perfection of individuals. Yeah. And so the that's that's a that's an aspect of of my I guess I don't know if you call it research or or whatever you want to call it my my daily. Uh, inquiry into life itself, I guess, but the, the but so that that's reflective of sort of where you know where my mind is always going is you know what are these relationships? At the moment, I'm I'm more in, I'm quite involved and I suppose you'd call it rather the abstruse science of understanding the local lichens, uh, which requires a lot of chromatography and examination of spores and and other esoterica involving the taxonomy of lichenized fungi per region, and while and I've enlarged the region to include 53 counties in southwest in southern Lake Michigan, and, and Laura is doing the same thing for bees. She's working now on the bees, and she has about 500 species of bees in the region. And I have about 500 species of lichen, as it turns mm-hmm. out, and 
so that's what we're working on there. But again, uh, just watching. So I, I worked while I took that you know that 20 years out with Laura to work on that flora, and then but in 1997 I think I produced a flora, a lichen flora of the region, and I studied the lichens pretty intensely at that time, and now I'm studying them again, and uh, it's pretty clear that the the lichenose flora of the region has really improved since then, and in fact, uh, it reached its low probably right around that time, maybe uh, you know after, into the 70s, I suppose, 60s and 70s. Uh, the, the, the land was becoming quite depopulated, but really since the National Environmental Policy Act, while the EPA is a largely a corrupt organization, there are a lot of politicians and scoundrels that are, in, are engaged at the upper levels, and there are, uh, there's a lot of incompetency at the lower levels. For all that, the the spirit of the of the uh, National Environmental Policy Act and the applications of remedies uh, to a lot of our problems has really led to a, a great improvement in our air and our water and and to a large extent our landscapes. I know that's probably hard to imagine, particularly for people who didn't live through that period, but uh, the, uh, but I, I mean, I, I'm kind of drifting, but so the lichens are just like, just like the plants. I'm trying to learn to, to determine the extent to which the observations of lichens in a particular habitat or substrate can tell me the extent to which our relationship with that substrate and for the ambient, the ambient, uh, ambient environment of the substrate is improving or uh, in some way uh, degrading or, or depauperate or whatever. And so it's just another metric that I am using to try to understand the world we live in. You know, it's just, I don't know what, it's maybe it's a, it's a kind of a neurosis uh, I have of this, uh, this compulsion to collect and uh, categorize and try to understand. I mean, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm also a, a coin collector, but <laughs> whatever that's worth. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I seem to like to collect things and organize them and try to try to see the patterns uh, that, you know, that are, are interesting. And, of course, in coins, there's patterns of history and, and, uh, and the, the things that a particular the icons of a country at a particular time in history. This sort of thing is interesting. Well, that's not that far off of what I'm, what I, what I do with plants and, and lichens and, and the like. So I, I don't really have anything uh, that I'm working on in particular that would that would sound romantic or or in some way noteworthy, other than my sort of a Hobbit-like attention to to lichens. <laughs> Um, I mean, I think it's fascinating that lichens are sensitive indicators of what's going on in the wider world and that there's actually perhaps some good news coming from the world of lichens. And, um, you know, I guess if we can segue from lichens to another underappreciated group, you've written really beautifully about sedges and their role in natural habitats. And I would love to hear your thoughts about sedges what are some of the things, what some, some of the functions 
that they perform in different kind of habitats. And maybe if you could, uh, you know, essentially recapitulate some of the things that you've written about them uh, here in this interview, I'd just really appreciate it. You're welcome. Uh, well, uh, this, this, okay, the, what, what the sedges are, just like the grasses, they're a, a largely a north temperate, uh, well, they're, they're a group of, of, of plants that, are relatively new among the angiosperms, but they, what a feature that many of them have is that, that most most other vascular plants do not have is they have a, a fine root system. And yeah. by that I mean I mean very fine roots that just innervate everywhere, almost like capillaries and tissue, right? And when so, we when we grow sedges in our nursery, it's astonishing to take them out of the propagation flats or out of their pots and see, I mean, a 10 by 20 propagation flat filled with sedges, essentially you could turn it upside down and use it as a woven welcome mat. It's just so densely fibrous and so yes. incredibly held together. Um, maybe I'll try to take a picture of that and put that up with the interview as a visual, but that's what really just blew me away about sedges was looking at the root structure after growing them. So please continue. Well, that's, that's exactly right. And of course, grasses are the same. Uh, now, corn is a grass, for example, but it, it's a different kind of grass. It's an annual, and most of its uh, photo, photosynthate goes into top, all right? Mm -hmm. But the native but corn has about 800 kilograms of root mass per hectare, and I think the prairie grasses, you know, in this region have uh, 15 to 18,000 kilograms of root mass per hectare, all right? So... That's with two, that's with about 10,000 foot candles of light on a July day with no with no with no clouds. That's that produces a a lot of photosynthate. Well, when you so that grass, those grass roots, what they do, is they're a lot like the sedge roots. They 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 inter, they innervate just like capillaries and healthy tissue throughout. And but what they do, what's also magical, Jared, is they they those since they're fine and small, they die a lot of the whole system will turn over about every three years. And what that leaves within the soil, within the ground, is organic matter innervated throughout. And that's how soils are built. The, that organic, it's, it's because these, the prairies and the woodlands and our north temperate landscapes were uh, our perennial systems, the only way God could think of getting organic matter or deep mulch down below in such a way was to grow uh, grass roots that are always dying, and of course the grass roots that die uh, are turned into organic matter, which is always decomposing and therefore generating CO2 and water. And so, so when you have a, a a root mass like that that's always dying and living and dying, you have a constant source source of moisture. There's no such thing as drought. So the, the whole system has is basically drought resistance drought resistant in that it generates its own water so so you know how you pile up leaves or mulch and there's yeah. a there's a tea underneath right because of yeah. all the uh organic uh decomposition well that's what's happening in the soil but in a more in a more completely uh integrated way within the system and this is how the pedons develop and how real soils develop and so the soil itself becomes a living tissue, just the way our our muscles are all innervated with good red blood capillaries and whatnot, and just keep our 
keep every cell well supplied with oxygen and and uh, with relief from CO2 and and other uh, products of uh, of oxid of uh, you know life product. And so this is this what keeps the soil healthy. Also, that that root system and all that water in there means, and because of the specific heat of water, means that that soil cannot get too hot or too cold very fast. Because, and so that that makes it an ideal environment for ectothermic organisms, such as insects and and plants, whose enzyme systems function uh, in accordance with the ambient temperature. So when you uh, so and that and that and that water, then that moisture in the soil is 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 completely linked up with the average daily temperature that sustains about 25 30 centimeters down in our region and so the just the way you it takes forever to warm up a, a pot of water a, a pot with water in it it takes forever to warm up or to cool down that mm-hmm. soil and if you put a pot on the stove uh, with no water in it it heats up in a hurry right mm-hmm. so when we deplete our soils when we till them out and we oxidize organic matter down to 2% or even less what it is now in most of Illinois and Iowa and Indiana, uh, we've lost that thermal that connection with the thermal mass below, and the soil can get too hot or too cold way too fast. In fact, with, with a lot of our fields of corn and bean in them, um, the the soils are only, a, there's only, there's only with, with, there's only a life in them for about 90 days sometimes 120 days. And so the rest of the growing season, sit there, it sits there and cooks. And uh, the, uh, I actually think that, the, that with, with corn and bean over, well, actually bean, they don't even have a fiber root system. It has about 300 kilograms of root mass per hectare. <laughs> and so it's corn and bean, and when you till, you... Uh, you, you, when you till over the soil, it oxidizes very rapidly. For Purdue did a study that showed that uh, of the 90, 90, I think it was 90, uh, 90 million acres that were in CRP in, from, from 1980 to 1990, uh, they had accumulated about a ton of organic carbon per acre per year when growing with grass in it and not tilling. And then within 90 days of tillage, they were back to net loss of organic matter. Right. So I calculated, or I back calculated that one tillage of six acres was the equivalent of driving a car that gets 25 miles a gallon 10,000 miles in terms, wow. of CO2, in terms of CO2 production. And then so with tillage, you just wind up with continued loss of organic matter to the point where in our soils with our silty clay loams, it's very difficult to get to, get to oxidize much more than, you know, just to, to down to about a, a, a percent and a half or two percent organic carbon, which isn't enough to keep the soil moist and to keep the connection with the thermal mass of the earth below. So you can go out in September uh, at a 72-degree day and measure soil up into, up into the hundreds of degrees, 110, 112 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. And uh, whereas if you put this at that same place, you, if you put that thermometer down into the sward of little blue stem grass, your temperature's down about 85, 80, 80 degrees on a 72 degree day. It's warmed up to that very slowly over the season and will slowly warm or cool off over the winter. 
and uh, that's the kind of stability that that these systems like. Well, that's that's the prairie. Well, the sedges there are sedges in the prairie, but most of our I would say about a third of our sedge species grow in woodlands, and as soon as you walk under the boughs of a of a of an oak tree, your light levels drop by about an order of magnitude from from about uh, 10,000 foot candles to a thousand, and so you have about a tenth of the light that comes into that goes to the prairie, and so what that light is doing in a healthy system that has a thousand foot candles of light. You're growing the, the the sedges do the same thing in the woodlands that the pra, that the prairie grasses do in the prairies. But in the prairies, because they're so much more light, so much more photosynthate, they've actually produced more root mass every year than decomposes. Which means that's why we built the big black the, health, the deep black soils of the Midwest. While the woodlands generate about as much root mass every year as naturally oxidizes in our woodlands, and so. That's why the soils and our timbers were just pretty much had reached an equilibrium of of depth, depending on the woodland, usually around six, eight inches, something like that, of, of top soil, uh, if you want. To, and uh, but in that top soil, of course, because you have it's doing the same thing the, the the prairie roots did, keeps your soil moist, never gets dry, always moisture, and therefore that's a fertile ground for fungi and soil and soil micro microbes upon which so many of the woodland species, which have very little in the way of root systems if you pull them out, uh, as you know as a nurseryman, they, re, they are, uh, uh, well, their roots or bulbs or tubers are well supplied and are linked up with, with soil fungi, which never die because the soil is always moist. Well, when you shade out that woods and allow the, the, the young cherries and Ashes and elms and maybe some buckthorn or honeysuckle will come in. You quickly shade the level from a thousand foot candles down to a hundred. Now you've really reduced the amount of <clears throat> light getting to the ground, and so you've also reduced the amount of root mass being produced by the sedge roots. And those sedge roots, uh, remember I said that they they barely keep up with the uh, the oxidation rate that's natural in a woodland. Well, when you when you reduce the root production, you don't reduce the oxidation rate. So what happens in a woodland today, if you walk in a New Jersey uh, woodland, you will see that there are, in many cases, there are roots that grew below the ground with their little root tips when they were tiny roots, are now actually fully exposed. You can put your boot under some. Some of that's erosion, but most of that is simply oxidation of the soil due to uh, the fact that we have not been burning and harvesting the way the Indians did for all those years, so they've simply oxidized away. And uh, you see some spring flowers still because they're uh, they come up before the leaves on the trees come on. Yeah. Very little in the way of summer and fall flora. Yeah. And right. uh, you get more more soil erosion. You get often the woodlands are on are on slopes, and so you get sheep uh, you wash. And they're a real mess. And so the roots, the the, the sedge roots, are are they're the they're the the mainstay. Well, they're just like the the roots of the prairie. They're the, they're the living tissue of the forest. And when you and when you shade them out, you diminish the. You're in, at the end of the day, it's like you're starving the you're starving the system of of of, of essential uh, flesh. A lot of our forested areas will have leaf litter, but a very sparse 
herbaceous cover. And here, I'm, I'm in northern New Jersey, so you know, pretty uh-huh. pretty rich, fairly moist. Um, you know, typically we'll see woodland sedges in isolations where in isolation where there's you know maybe a steep former woods road bank that isn't holding leaf litter or some area where leaf litter is naturally shed by slope or wind. And I think it's, I think it's hard for the sedges to establish in that kind of thick, shaded, and 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 thick duff layer. Um, well, and, low, and and lots of light. Where you see sedges yeah. is mostly on maybe those areas along paths or where there's some light yeah. coming. But uh, they they need the light. And, and people in restoration efforts, because they 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 bought into my lectures on the sedges, how important and they'll plant them. In areas that are still too shady, and I've tried mm-hmm. to explain to them they mm-hmm. haven't they haven't thinned enough, and uh, they uh, but they're they're very sensitive people, and they don't want to cut trees any more than they think because they're 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 post they're well, anyway that's another discussion, but they they they're it's almost Joyce Kilmer uh, love of trees as if to cut one you you you've almost gone against God or something. I guess coming out of a prairie system, you're able to to approach that from a different sort of foundation mentality, and and maybe have a well, more critical yeah. approach to you know what the density of trees or at least young tree growth should be in in a healthy forested system. So I'm I'm really curious to hear your perspective on that. Well, that's that's uh, that's but that's. That's partly true. I, I think that uh, uh, you see, it's all cultural, right? So everything we do is cultural and comes from a, a, a particular frame and level of understanding. And so the ecology was born basically as a science, an obs- uh, where there was an observation made by Henry Chandler Coles in 19, 1899 that. Uh, when you do damage the sand dunes, uh, there was a growth back, okay, that you could see there was a pattern to that growth. And, of course, uh, Clements picked up on this idea of, of a climax because the idea was at that time that nature was nature and people were people and they didn't really mix. And this was partly partly born uh, because ecology was born in 1899 right in, in the right in the cultural construct of the Hudson River School of Art where people of New England and the Hudson Valley were were taking abandoned land or land that hadn't been had people in it for a long time uh, and thinking of it as forest primeval and that and that if a man entered a woods or did anything in a woods that this was uh, no, the woods was no longer virgin and so the idea then was to keep people out, to sustain the forest primeval. And also, uh, this became a little bit confusing when we started recognizing Indians as people, and then we recognized the Indians harvested and burned. But that was still, that's still a, a schizophrenic uh, observation, if in ecology, because ecologists still are trained basically to think that, that uh, ecological succession and nature is largely an autonomous uh, uh, system up that, that proceeds and develops and becomes what it is apart from human involvement. And this was an easier construct when people, when Indians weren't human, but that it, it's still, it's still 
it doesn't make it, when one contemplates it doesn't make any sense. That's why it's mostly ignored. But science still thinks of nature as something that should go on and and on on by itself. And so uh, in in the Chicago area where Henry Chandler Coles worked, we were right. It only been I mean the Black Hawk War had gotten over in 1832, so we'd only had white people there uh, observing things for not very long. Whereas people out east had had already, what, you know, 300 years of living in that landscape such as it was. And there were large districts there where there weren't people, the mountains of Vermont and the Appalachians and New Hampshire and whatnot. Maine were just covered with trees and there weren't people there. And this was considered a good thing. And people started painting them and revering the, the forest primeval. And, and then so out of this, Clements and, and uh, began this idea that, well, and, of course, a lot of those forests had already lost a lot of their ground cover and were becoming pretty much just almost monocultures of beech and maple with an occasional cherry or whatever, an ash, or, you know, a few other things. But he conceived this idea of a climax, that the natural condition was for uh, the, the, world to, the, the world to be at a healthy climax condition, which had reached its sort of holistic maximum, uh, which was by its very nature poor in species. And Samson, in, in the publication in the Illinois Natural History Survey, produced a, a paper in the 20s called The Prairie Vegetation of Illinois. And the prairie vegetation of Illinois, in his mind, in the, as an analog to the, to the climax forest, was a solid stand of big blue stem grass. Mm -hmm. and, when you, and when you, as he's put it, when you burn the, the prairie, you got wound up with coarse herbs. Well, uh, this this uh, this uh, idealistic optimum uh, just, I guess, forsake the idea that there were insects and other living things and even other plants that were part of the system. And uh, but it, it it interfered with the theory of a climax situation where human beings weren't involved and that they were in their virgin condition. And so this idea, this sort of Judeo-Christian idea, or just general cultural idea of people in the West in, in general, including Muslims, was that women uh, were a virgin if they had not been entered by man. Same way with nature. But with Eden, uh, we, weren't, we weren't supposed to enter it. We just felt somehow we, well, uh, when Cain slew Abel, it was abandoned to the land of non east of Eden, having sinned and uh, whatnot. We felt, un we've always had this sort of misunderstanding of, of what Eden is as a place where we really don't belong because we're all, you know, four forked animals, as Shakespeare might say. And so uh, this, this, all this sort of cultural construct gets in the way of ecological thinking. And so if you, it's like any doctrine. If you set your doctrine up with a set of principles and you ask questions within that doctrine, you're going to get doctrinal answers. And so science rarely, well, is rarely comfortable questioning uh, doctrine. Even right now, there's a struggle amongst uh, evolutionary biologists who are having difficulties trying to explain how uh, neo-Darwinism, uh, neo-Darwinian evolution can explain the diversity and the complexity of living systems, even at the eukaryotic stage. And so, but the doctrine is that uh, that Darwin basically had it right, and you don't change it. 
And so all questions are asked and answered in the sense of Darwinian evolution as if it were no longer a theory but, a, but an actual fact. In fact, you can't get a you can't get you can't get tenured in a in a in a uh, biology department if you question that and many other things. So doctrine is very difficult to penetrate. But one should always bear in mind whenever you're thinking up any having any thoughts about anything, and ask yourself, what is the doctrine within which I'm having these thoughts, within which I'm having these thoughts? And so the, it, but it's, just, it's just a question not often asked. And people who ask it are often often on the outside. So this, this idea of succession, climax, uh, this, 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 this now, this major weather front, intellectual weather front, that's right up against this compulsion and, and perception that we also need to manage these woodlands, either the burning or thinning, but we're afraid to do too much. We don't want to burn too much. We don't want to thin too much because, and so you see where we are, Jared? We're, we're, yeah. we're stuck in trying to answer these questions in a, in a sort of uh, Colesian doctrine or Clemensian doctrine Without, but still trying to uh, address the problems as we see them, and it's, it's it, they, that's why we're so confused and why there's so many questions. I think that makes sense. Yeah, I think that makes sense wrong. to me because you know, what you're basically saying is that the doctrine that uh, advances the idea of climax is, is basically venerating a type of stagnation, you know, a kind of stuckness in the ecosystem that is low diversity and low dynamism. And if that represents our ideal or what we consider to be an ecological ideal, then our own actions relative to the ecosystem are also going to be stagnant and stuck and and unable to, uh, you know, be decisive in the frame of restoration and cultural involvement. See, that's that's exactly right. In fact, uh, I asked George Ware, who was uh, a student of John T. Curtis, who and actually was involved in some of John T. Curtis's studies of the vegetation of Wisconsin, it, they, 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 and people today will say, well, a, a maple forest is naturally foreign species, as if, as if, like, why are you asking that question? Right. And, and uh, you, know, you may have encountered that yourself. Because that's why, again, I don't, I, I have, I have bucked the idea of plant communities as something that could be defined and to which definition we had to be obedient. And so my my main focus has been on the species and systems. And when when measuring woodlands or measuring at quadrat scales, and particularly with respect to uh, indexing the effectiveness of restoration uh, by doing quadrats and sampling the species, what you what I have also learned is unlike uh, human beings, uh, plants uh, and lichens. They do not lie to you. They don't. They don't cheat you. They're not ego. They have no ego. They're not tenure tracked. They have no agenda. They simply are what they are, and it's up to our selves to understand them and what they're doing, and, and then learn from what they're teaching us about our our responsibility for caring for them. And so, if in our our restoration efforts at the quadrat scale, the the, the native species of our systems are responding positively, we must be doing something right. If they're not, then we must be doing something that's not, that's not healthy for them. So it's up to us to adjust to what they're teaching us, 
not to what the professors with cloth beards and corduroy jackets are trying to tell us. When I do field work, I my feeling is that when I work in relatively intact areas, the ideas of upland or wetland or open and enclosed, they're often really complex and they're interdigitating and it's really hard to separate out big blocks. And what I end up separating out instead for the purposes of being descriptive and survey work is is land use history. That's where I see sort of blocks in the landscape. Like you'll have 40 acres post-agricultural in a certain way, and then you'll cross a stone wall and you'll have a completely different, you know, quote unquote community, but it's not necessarily based on classic features of geology or weather or slope or whatever so much as, you know, this is where the stone row is. And on one side of this X happened and on the other side, Y happened. That, that's right. You're, what you're observing is, in all cases, whether you're managing a natural area or trying to analyze whether there was a cabin here once or whether it was pastured or whatever, or an old roadbed, is you're looking what has been the cultural relationship with this place, with this place over time, yeah. and what's its potential in the future if we reapply ourselves in that relationship. And that's really the question. And you use the plants, the native, the, the, the native plants. And how they respond, or the, the weeds too, but the natives are the are the sure indices of whether or not, because that's what we're managing for, is trying to re, re, rebuild that warp and weft of life that which they composed, and um, that's where you're, that's what you're really observing. Is is, is that's uh, those are easier to see than the subtle ecotones and and uh, uh, sometimes not so subtle ecotones and transitions from one assembly of plants to another, but you're seeing, I remember one time I was up in the uh, the Yukon doing some botany work uh, with some Canadian guys, and they would fly us out about 150 miles in a helicopter out to this place where they were, we were trying to analyze the trees or whatnot, and I would see stuff turned over, and I'd see a, a spot that looked kind of like quite weird, what happened, I'd think, who's been screwing around here? And then I had to keep jumping back to say, no, you're a city boy. And out here, stuff happens, and it happens. It just it, it's it's not been because somebody screwed it up. It's just the way it is. Mm. But something's happened there. I had there had maybe hadn't been an Athabascan Indian there for two hundred years, but there was something going on, you know. And so, also, what's also difficult about the plant community concept? Maybe I'm getting a little bit off the subject, but sort of what you're talking about about the trying to. If you would, if you were to set down a quadrat, uh, say a quarter meter quadrat, and take the inventory in it, and step five paces away and do another one, and it was it was say all the same looking, maybe a beech maple linden thing, and uh, if you took the coefficients coefficient of similarity for each one of those quadrats against the uh, each other, in the in a, in a what we what you regard as a as a a, a unified system. Well, actually, I say a plant community, you would discover that each quadrat is no more than 70% similar to the one, to the next one you measure it with. Every square quarter meter of living system is unique to the world. There's nothing else like it. Just like every baby born of the womb is different from all other babies born or ever will be born. And they each have their own sort of spirit in the sense that that spot if properly curated, will continue to be unique and part of the overall warp and weft of that 
system that makes it beautiful, that individual uniqueness that this, and that's, all, that's true at the quarter, a quarter meter scale, the meter scale, the tenth hectare scale, the hectare scale. It doesn't matter what scale you do it. It's, it's, it's everything's different. Everything's all, there's nothing the same. I really appreciate what you're saying because I feel like it gets at the fascination of doing field botany for me, that it's almost like tracking that every plant or small area, small assemblage of plants tells you, tells you something about the history of the place and something about the unique character of that exact spot. And, and you can really follow that trail and at least make a lot of assumptions. I'm not sure how many of the assumptions I make are correct, but really make a lot of assumptions about what happened in the past and what might be going on with water or fire or absence thereof and so many other things. So I really like the way that you put that about each, uh, you know, each individual quadrat being its, its sort of own individual entity in the world. It's almost like a, a footstep or a track of an animal. Exactly. And it, or a snowflake. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that's just the way it is. And they, uh, Wayne Lapp and I did a study in DuPage County, Illinois. I don't know if you know where that is, but it's one county west of Chicago's county, which is okay. Cook. And we, uh, George Ware had laid out for us what he called, uh, uh, dry mesic, uh, upland woods, he called it. And he, he found, we found 50 acres of these around the county. And they were all had, they were all together, they were in all these 50 acres of different acres of what George called, uh, dry mesic, uh, upland forest was, uh, 18 tree species all together. And they looked, if you go walk into one, they all had sugar maple, linden, white oak, red oak, you know, you can picture it. Yeah. Well, we did, we sampled all the trees. It wasn't statistical. We sampled all the trees in each acre. And then we took each acre's uh, tree composition and compared them, Sorensen and coefficient of similarity, against all other acres in that matrix. Each acre, with only 18 trees, had an average coefficient of similarity of 0.52. You wouldn't think that would be mathematically possible with 50 uh, replications involving 18 trees. But they each, each, so each area that was regarded as identical by George was very yeah. unique. And then we sampled the entire flora of each acre, and we ran the coefficient of similarity of that as well, each acre upon the next or against the next, and the 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 uh, means the uh, it was about point it was about point five two again. So every acre that was called the same by an ecologist, a well-trained ecologist, student of Curtis, uh, was. Utterly, unutterably unique. So thinking about that and thinking about terms like dry and music and the different ways that we try to lump habitats or describe them broadly brings me back to some of the questions that I originally had written out here where I want to ask you about terminology that we as botanists and restorationists use that are these kind of convenient generalizations and, and what do they really mean? And one of the ones that I want to ask you about is what does it really mean when we talk about having rich or poor soils? I often use this as a botanist in the field in this almost tautological way. Like I'll see an area of Pennsylvania sedge and lowbush blueberry and camophila maculata and chestnut oaks and what have you, and I'll say, 
oh, this is poor soil because it has poor soil species on it. And then I'll see an area with, you know, black cohosh and maidenhair fern or Pacarabo veda or, uh, you know, maybe some sugar maples and lindens or hackberries or bladder nuts or whatever. And I'll say this is a rich soil because it has rich soil species on it. And I am interested in geology and its effects on the soil. So I have some thoughts on this of my own, but I'm really curious for you to take that apart. How do you feel about calling soils rich or poor? And and what is behind that, if anything? And, And do you think that is a fair way to talk about plants and plant communities and soils? Well, I won't. Uh, address whether it's fair or not. Uh, those are terms I don't usually uh, myself use, okay. and I think it is sort of tautological, like almost any word that we, or a concept that we develop is, it develops its own sort of circular reasoning as to how we view it, and so I would suppose if you're going to use those terms you simply define them yourself in some way so that yeah. other people can deploy them after the manner you have used them so you can communicate with each other. But those aren't you know, we'll sometimes say, well, this is rich woods, which usually means it's got a spring floor that's pretty cool with lots of trillions and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. But, you know, but, uh, but, you know, I mean, you can, in the Chicago area, we can have some rich woods on both uh, morainic uh, soils with, uh, you know, 30% clay, actually, you know, or more in the, in the uh, so- soil or uh, just on this uh, sand uh, yeah, as well, you know, beach mice. So it's, I, I, I guess I don't think of soils quite that way. I think maybe the way I look at soils is the extent to which they've been damaged, you know, whatever the soil is. If, the, if, if a sand, for example, has lost its organic matter, then it'll tend to leach nutrients down to the water table. Yeah. And uh, if it's got a lot of clay in it and it's lost its organic matter, it tends to wash and the nutrients flow downstream on the surface. And so when you damage a soil of any kind, you you disrupt the balance of C. Hopkins Cafe, if you will. You know, that, that little uh, mnemonic device mm-hmm. or whatever. C. Hopkins Cafe, mighty good, you know, the, the essential nutrients of plants. And if, if they, if any of those elements in that cafe become uh, uh, either depleted or surfeited, the system runs into trouble. And that's, that can be regarded as a kind of disturbance depending on whatever that particular plant community or plant system on that soil is. And then you're back to your sort of disturbance again. If you, if you start losing roots mass or, or, oxidizing that root mass in some way that's not salubrious to that particular system, it, that's a kind of disturbance in the sense that it's no longer able to sustain the inventory and see happens caffeine in an appropriate manner for that system. So how do we, how do we restore soils? I mean, as a plant-focused person who thinks of soils as something of a black box, um, you know, my tools always move towards plants, but, you know, I think, you know, when we're talking about disturbance or degradation, there's clearly something that happened to the soil that may not be easy, easily repairable. And I'm just curious what either your experience or your intuitions kind of going forward are telling you about how we can approach soils in a positive manner. It's, uh, it's, it's, it, I, I, I have, I, I think in the lifetime of a human being, uh, no soil is ever going to come close to ever getting back to what it was once it's been heavily damaged either compacted or eroded or something. It's very t- People will say, 
they'll want to plant a woodland, okay? And so the first yeah. thing they do is they go out on our where our worn out uh, glacial till and start planting trees on 200 foot <laughs> centers, you know? And then they maybe will plug in some sedges or something. Well, the soil this isn't there. It's uh, and of course, in order for sedges and many of our woodland plants to move around, you need ants with the proper gape width on their mandibles to move the uh, the seeds from here to there. And if you have the soil, if you've lost your soil, that means you've lost your ants, which means you've lost the 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 whole infrastructure for myrmecophorous plants, and you and you. And the, and the reason you lose the ants is because the ants can no longer thermoregulate their pupae and larvae in the soil that's getting too hot or too cold. And so you wind up with very few ants. Laura can go into a woods and if she sees a good sward of Carrie's Pennsylvania and other sedges around, she's going, she knows she's going to find 18, 20 species of ants. If she goes in and all she sees is leaf litter and no sedges or little few sedges, she's not, she knows which three or four species of ants she's going to find. And they're all going to be nested underneath a stage six log somewhere where there's still some soil moisture. So the soil, uh, it, it, so what I, would, what I would recommend to people who want to restore soil is a plant uh, prairie grass, even if it was a woodland soil at one time, plant prairie grass in it and just keep burning it for maybe a century or two until it begins to rebuild itself and you get some hard carbon back up into the pedons and you get some pedon development and you start rebuilding the soil. But it's going to take some patience. I, I you know, once the soil is damaged, it's like it's like a like again almost going back to the analog of a stroke victim. Once you damage the tissue, it's it's damaged. It, it's like it's, you know when when an airplane crashes uh and there are bodies that you don't know where all the parts go to and things all crashed around, you, it's gone, it's over. It, you, it's very difficult to bring that, you can't bring it back. And so that's the, that's the problem if you think of and understand that soil is a living thing, and when you kill the soil, you've actually killed it. Yeah. It's a hard thing for people today to, to grasp, it's the idea that, that that we can actually kill things. We we We... We obliterate things. We obliterate species. We obliterate soil. We obliterate water. We obliterate all sorts of things. And and it's and uh, we, I guess ecologists have told us uh, in the past that well, if you got to when they see some uh, young trees coming up in an old field, you better uh, you better don't you better get out of the way and don't let that beech tree hit you in the ass because it's going to recover and become a climax source someday. And and uh, we have this idea that it all just grows back, and that's what Shrey Schulenberg taught me a long time ago was that uh, you damage the system to the point where it's damaged that it just won't not, it, it won't grow back, and that goes back to the first quality assessment. How do you identify those places that have been damaged to the point where they won't grow back, and then how do you identify those places that if damaged and uh, they they their loss is irretrievable, and therefore. Crucial to say whether it's called a grade A or B or C. If it's got conservative species, with that mean up in the threes, uh, it's not replaceable if we wreck it. So we can make cultural decisions to save them or not. But once the soil is gone, it's gone. Jerry, I'd love to keep you forever um, and ask you many more questions. And I do generally like to end on some kind of a positive note. But I feel like that 
really ties together a lot of the sort of strands and threads that we opened up here. And I appreciate that as a conclusion. I feel like it really highlights the importance of identifying and working with and managing the most special remaining places in our landscape. So I want to thank you a lot for the work that you've done and for taking the time to speak to me today, similarities of what they do and they don't like. And so I really value that we work with both restorationists and home gardeners because I do think, you know, I think I share this feeling with you that it's as much as needs to be done scientifically, it's really cultural work that needs to be done to to re-inspire a connection with the plant world. Exactly. And with the living earth. Yeah. Thank you, to be, to be continued, Jerry. Thanks so much oh, for your time. All right. Yeah, anytime, Jared. You take care. Great. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.